Welcome back to Commodity Conversations, brought to you by Lifteam from Mercado.com.au. This week, we have Robert Herman is going to be questioning a few industry stalwarts about the future of the merino industry. So Robert will be talking to a couple of different people. He'll be talking to Andrew Ritchie of Iconag, a farmer, Charlie DeFegley, and Marius Cumming from AWI. So... The conversations are taking place at, at different points in time, so some of the audio might be slightly slightly off, but uh, it's interesting conversations, and I think it's uh, an opportune time to discuss the future of the marino industry, especially considering you know which way the wool market has gone over the past sort of six to eight weeks. First of all, before we jump into it, I just want to say a big thank you to one of our supporters, and that is Farm Tender and Dwayne Duxon. Farm Tender is a great place if you are looking for uh, to buy and sell items. It's a lot of uh, farmer-to-farmer trade. It's a bit like eBay, but for farm equipment. Uh, I've personally lo- used it myself with uh, looking for pieces of, of equipment for, for the farm. And also, uh, it's, it's quite a handy resource for looking at things like uh, hay. It's one of the few places you actually see sort of open, transparent hay pricing. So... Uh, have a look at them there at farmtender.com.au. You can, uh, if you are looking for new equipment, they also sell things like fertilizer and a whole host of different things. So have a look on there. It's uh, it's always worthwhile having a check before you go out and spend uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars on something. And you might be able to buy it cheaper from another farmer who wants to get rid of their equipment. So without further ado, I'll just pass you off to Robert, who's going to introduce today's conversation. Well, let's start with the question. How do we make Merino great again? In previous times, Australia rode on the sheep's back, and more specifically, the merino sheep's back. This can no longer be the claim of the industry. My concern is, is that there is a big problem coming for the marine industry, and by extension, the Australian wool industry. The causes are a combination of droughts, recently um, completed droughts, and those still in place, strong demand for sheep meat, and the growth of acres that are being sown to crops. Firstly, what are my credentials and background? Well, I started life on a sheep farm. We had some cattle and grew a few oats, but we were a sheep farm. And we weren't just a sheep farm, it was a merino wool producing sheep farm. The small prime lamb enterprise was a spin-off of the cast for age merino ewes. I learnt the pleasures of cold winters in the wool store at shearing time, where the results of years of breeding and nurturing were realised in the baling of beautiful white, bright, soft wool. I also learnt to shear sheep, spending several years mainly in Western Victoria but also in Western Queensland. Dad's reasoning for teaching the skill of shearing, which had helped him pay for the farm, was, well, you might as well become a shearer. It's no burden to carry. I can still shear a sheep. It's like, a bit like riding a bike. Once learnt, you never forget. The difference from my early years of working five days a week and eight hours a day is that a couple of sheep would probably see me out these days. I then fell on my feet and became the eldest district wool manager and based at Hamilton. At that stage, Hamilton proudly announced at the entrances to the town that it was the wool capital of the world. Elders during this period sold on behalf of clients out of this region about 50,000 bales. Just for some context, this is almost the complete Tasmanian wool clip today. Of course, Hamilton also hosts the famous Sheepvention Field Days, probably the largest collection of merino sheep in the world. However, these days it also includes many other ag-related displays. So my concern for the future of merino sheep and wool comes from a long involvement. Having such a close involvement can lead to over-inspection and maybe seeing problems where they may not exist. So in this podcast, we'll get others to comment, people who are close to the industry, 
or have a passion for sheep or who are considered experts. So for some background, let me begin. And to elaborate, various drought and dry seasons since 1990 has resulted in long periods where the flock offtake, that is the percentage of sheep slaughtered or exported, as a percentage of the total flock, has been above 12%. Now we know 12% is significant because as Andrew Woods first identified, if the offtake is above 12%, the flock will decline. Conversely, if the offtake is below 12%, the flock is in growth phase. What this has meant is that the flock since its peak in 1990 of 170 million sheep has declined to somewhere below 65 million sheep. This decline has been most focused on the merino flock. In 2006, it was estimated that 86% of sheep flocks contain merinos. By 2016, this had declined to 65%. Contributing in the early period was the disillusionment sheep producers had with wool. Prices for other commodities seem more attractive, and it could be said that the future of other enterprises seem more positive. Hence, the fight for acres was comprehensively lost by the wool industry, and more specifically merino sheep, firstly to cropping and more recently to prime lamb production. Those farmers who chose to exit wool production and move to cropping have shown little appetite to return to sheep. The lure of machinery and a simpler production model seem to be enough to hold them out. There are some in the merino industry who quote examples of the recently departed pining to return. However, there is little evidence of any meaningful about turn to the flow from sheep to crops. In 1990, there was about 13 million hectares sown to crop against 170 million head of sheep. Today, we have somewhere between 19 and 20 million hectares to crops and only 65 million sheep or maybe even less. To add salt to the wounds... This shift that saw many sheep farmers swing from wool to lamb production has coincided with one of the strongest upward market moves seen in livestock, with lamb and mutton since 2000 showing sustained price improvement and at a time of declining flock numbers increasing slaughter from 17 million to 23 million per head annually. Those who jump ship are in a self-congratulatory mode and certainly not about to return. The drought has played another card in the fate of merino sheep. Wool prices have recently rallied in some cases to all-time highs. However, the merino industry has been unable to increase or grow. If conditions had been more favourable, that is the season had been more favourable, farmers would have increased their flocks to take advantage of the wool market rally. In the season just past, 6,500 fewer bales per week were cleared to the trade compared to a year ago. Perversely, the decision to destock as a result of the drought was made easier as demand for sheep meat from emerging customers also grew and prices remained strong. The season will eventually break, at least it always has, so what happens then? To try and figure it out, let's use a case study of a merino sheep farmer who has been adversely impacted by the season and has been understocked. What will they do when they have feed and decide to grow their businesses again? One option will be to take it steady and breed their flock back up. This will be slow coming off a low base, as well as frustrating if the season is favourable. There are not many farmers out there who are content to see surplus feed go unused when it arrives. Another option will be to buy sheep. If the target of buying these sheep is high quality merino sheep to replenish their wool clip, good luck. I'm not sure where you would find a seller, and if you did, the price would be prohibitive. It will be marginally easy to just buy any type of ewes and join to a prime lamb sigh. Then the reward will be principally from meat sales, but this strategy also will not produce a sustained benefit to merino wool production. 
If it's decided that sheep are too costly or unattainable, then an extra paddock of wheat would be an easy option and provide a quick cash return. So you can see why I think there's a problem ahead for the merino wool industry. We've seen improved demand resulting in higher prices, but if this demand is not met with supply, then markets can be lost. We thought, why not ask those in the industry what they think? What does a marina producer who is stuck with wool production through the good times and the bad think? Is this a looming problem or not? We also talked to someone who jumped ship and is now a large prime land producer. Have they got any thoughts about returning on the back of these strong wool prices? Not, to, not content with just talking to farmers, we asked some of the industry advisors. They have the ear of the sheep producers and are all happy to share their views. I just need to make one acknowledgement. We said at the start this was about how to make Merino great again, and you would know that this is an oft-used phrase sometimes in uh, US politics, but I also need to acknowledge that Anthony Close came up with this idea a while back, and uh, so well done, Anthony. The question we asked these people was, do you think the Merino flock will grow, both as a percentage of the total sheep flock and also in absolute terms in the future? And if, it, if not, is that a problem? If you think it will grow, then how will it happen? And finally, what are the suggestions does any of these interviewees have to make Merino great again? Okay, so let's get into it. The first person we thought we would talk to was somebody who had a long history of Merinos up to a point. Uh, in fact, um, I'm going to be talking to Charlie DeFagley from Quamby at Ararat. And Charlie was one of the first people I came across in my early career who was considered to be um, really focused on pastures and productivity as a merino flock. But Charlie, uh, you made the move and you're no longer a merino flock. So we thought, what do you think? What do you think about the future of merinos? In fact, does it mean these uh, prices and and uh, the wool industry is encouraging you to rethink? Uh, no, it's not yet. And I suggest that the, the type of merino genetics are just not suited to our environment, and we moved across on two accounts. One is uh, the merino feet, and the other one is the inability of the carcass to put weight on during late spring after weaning and hold body condition during autumn. Our merinos, we had to feed so much to keep their body weights up to get the prime lamb side of the operation that we actually uh, switched across largely because our merinos uh, just didn't hold weight. So, when we're hearing Charlie that um, you know there's a little there's an element of hope in your voice there that perhaps movements in the genetics could um, could encourage you back. It would encourage me to have a micron that's well finer than thirty, Rob. Um, I see what's happening in New Zealand and forty micron wool, which is where the composite. Uh, prime lamb mother is in many cases is producing a product that really is not wanted and for us if we can get merinos that have the characteristics of a prime lamb you but have a 20 well let's say 22 to 24 micron range i would really consider it because i think that can add 30 to 40 dollars worth of wool where currently we're getting 18 and that is actually better than a lot of producers in the prime land world that the wool check doesn't pay for their shearing check. And we want to avoid getting in that position. Yeah, okay. So that, that's, a, that's a positive. And I suppose in part of our question is, um, and, and I know you watch the wool industry and you've been involved for a long time in farming, 
What about the decline in the flock? So we've, you know, 1990, as I said in my intro, we were 170 million. We're now down to, um, you know, the low 60s, I guess. Do you think that's a problem for the wool industry? I do. I think that's a big problem because I think it could end up that it just can't meet the supply of the markets that it's developed. And I think that must be a concern for processes around the world that if they can't get product, they're going to switch to something. And, and we know that when they switch, it's a very it's very hard for them to get back. I think also coming out of a drought in our experiences, especially after 67, 68 and the 82 drought, is that unfortunately our sheep were down in condition. And so they weren't really primed for reproductive. Uh, they were quite good for wool, but they certainly weren't in reproductive um, prime form. And, and my concern is that for a lot of uh, flocks, that's where we're going to be when it rains. And that's going to take a while to help us rebuild the pure wool merino flock. Now, I happen to know, Charlie, that back in that drought you talked about, your father had a bit of an innovative idea. The, <coughs> Dad joined the ewes, put the rams straight back with the ewes after they lambed, and we actually got three lambs in two years. The second lambing wasn't brilliant, but uh, that was all about body weight. Uh, but he successfully built numbers quite quickly. That strategy would, does work, but it comes with some very inherent risks that if you're, um, if the season goes against you, you've really got to start supplementary feeding. And when cash flow is low, which I'm guessing it is for a lot of wool producers, that's the last thing they want to get into. The other one that's being talked about at the moment is the mating of ewe lambs or ewe hoggets. Uh, that also is not without risk. And uh, we've been doing that with our composite flock for several years now. We've actually got the capacity in our flock to actually rebuild every year and a half or replace the flock every one and a half years. So that's just the, the benefits of a 150, 160 lambing percent. That's a great challenge for the merinos, though. So just to finish off, um, if you were going to – do you have, have a suggestion, apart from improving that lambing percentage, how can we make merino great again? I think, um, Rob, probably for a lot of them, it would actually be to retain weathers. Uh, cash flow is always going to be an issue, but if wool's their primary focus, they may need to, to um, uh, retain weathers because the cash flow probably won't be as bad at doing that as it will be to go and buy sheep. And um, I think that if they do that, and then, then obviously they're going to have to really look after their ewes, and if they work through their cash flows with it, looking at um, maybe lambing twice, but, but uh, being aware of the traps, that's twice in one year, uh, to help rebuild numbers. Uh, it, I think it would be such a shame if the wool industry fell over because of lack of supply. Uh, I don't think it will totally fall over, but I think there's markets that might disappear that are hard to get back. Well, that's fantastic. Thanks, Charlie. And we're now going to talk to a few others, but you've given us a great platform. All the best. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Absolutely. Talking to Andrew Ritchie from the Sheepsback and Icon Ag. Andrew, what's your role in WA? Uh, my role in WA is uh, twofold. We we run our own farm management consultancy business. Um, with uh, from a sheep perspective, runs about five hundred thousand sheep a year amongst the client base, the local client base, plus of course the lambs that they have. They're running around about. 325 to 330,000 ewes at, at uh, 
eighty to ninety percent landing. So, so, so you should have your um, finger on so the we'll pulse have there. Our hands on, we'll have our hands on about eight hundred thousand sheep this year. Luckily, all things going well. I do recall my first contact with Bob Hall over there, who was uh, who was originally part of your business, but uh, he told me that you were producing four percent of the Australian wool clip. So I guess that's somewhere where you are now. But one of the things that we're, this podcast is concerned about the future of the merinos, and it, and it's not really that tied up in Western Australia. This big challenge that's coming, it's more New South Wales. But I had a look at MLA and AWI uh, sheep forecast and. Uh, they're saying that uh, you know the, the breeding flock is dropping. It drops quite significantly um, uh, Australia wide, so from forty two point seven million down to forty point four. But they're all but they're forecasting that the Western Australian ewe flock will actually increase from six point nine million to seven point seven million. Do you think that's is that right, Andrew? It just seems like well, it a seems a bit bullish to me. I mean, ours, ours have grown four percent year on year total ewes. Um, so yeah, out of the twelve percent seems a bit of a bigger number, given that we're probably accounting for a large number of sheep. So four percent of a bigger number um, would take a huge increase from smaller numbers to get there, wouldn't it? Yeah, it would. And just for for people who aren't familiar, WA has got a pretty strong merino presence compared to the rest of Australia, hasn't it? Uh, yeah, I'd say Merino you dominate the landscape um, almost universally to the point where Merino use mated to Merinos is probably, you know, three times the number of Merino use mated to crossbreds and then the rest are made up of um, uh, the so-called dual purpose sheep and the shedding sheep. So, so, so we yeah, know here on the... De- definitely dominate the, the sheep landscape. So across uh, and certainly dominate the sheep landscape in the sheep belt. So on the east coast here, we've had the challenge mainly of um, cropping. First of all, um, some merino sheep have moved to prime lambs, but the big challenge really has been the drought, I suppose, in recent times. What what's the situation over in in the west? Are you are the, is the sheep under any pressure? Is it is it different or? Um, and, and if that's the case, how are, you, how are sheep farmers dealing with this? Um, well, if you look back at the changing land use from, say, 1990, there, there was a, a concomitant uh, change in both matings to pure merinos uh, to crossbreds. So people started to take on crossbreds to generate some cash flow. And then at the same time, there was the chase rakers. So people uh, took one look at the pricing landscape from a wool perspective and worked out they couldn't expand their businesses that way so they had to go cropping. So uh, you and, did say... And that that you, came with it, the technological shift in the cropping as well, so it made it easier. Well, you did say uh, earlier that the challenge was the um, uh, labour efficiency, I guess, with uh, cropping versus sheep. What yeah. what are some of the innovative things that are happening to try and address that? Because if it doesn't go away, then we're going to continue to see this this uh, challenge and it's a, it's a bit of an uneven fight at the moment? Um, that's a very good question. There's a lot of techn- technology happening in the space at the moment that might offer some respite and by that I mean things like the, the new worm egg counting tech- technology that is appearing on the landscape that will take that out of the grower's hands 
certainly the breeding for lower um, breech wrinkle, I think, is also a technique to reduce labour component if we can get the fly sure. to be less significant. And um, oh, AWI's got some fantastic stuff going in the fly research space per se, right down to the genome of the fly. So you'd have to think that putting all that together, there's, there's the beginnings of a fly-free package, if you if you will, for a lot more guys. Um, so I see that as uh, opportunistic. Some of the handling gear that's emerged um, from the engineering firms is, is very handy. And, of course, the growers themselves are innovating um, to, to combine jobs uh, where they can. But uh, yeah, I think it's a mentality thing. We have to we have to think our way through to getting our hands off the sheep rather than putting them on the sheep, and, and that's where the breakthroughs will come. Yeah, and I think that's a really good point. Just uh, just to finish up, there is a, a, a peculiar aspect of the Western Australian sheep industry that is a that has a big impact, and that's the live export. So I think last year, thirty eight percent of the WA turnoff ended up going live export. If you compare that to the East Coast, we're about 1.5%. Yeah, so, yeah, um, no, there's, no, there's no doubt it's a significant feature of the industry um, to such an extent that, well, if I was to throw you some numbers there, the carryover of adult weathers beyond their hoggett stage is about 2% of the, the weather numbers or the U numbers. So they just don't make it into adult stage. They all get sold. Uh, and... The future of that live trade then becomes critical to how growers set up their flocks. Thanks, Andrew. Now we're going to chat with Marius Cumming from AWI. Yeah, good Marius Cumming, General Manager of Wool Grower Engagement at Australian Wool Innovation. Apologies for the, the man flu, but uh, from an Australian Wool Innovation point of view, we, we just want uh, some, it'd be great to, to see some normal seasons to allow people to bounce back. And I think the, the capacity that is there, the will is there from a lot of people, but uh, sadly Mother Nature is uh, not doing her part. I think that's a really good point, Marius, because um, some of the some of the innovation, oh, well, I guess programs, call them innovations, whatever you like, but some of the programs that have been put in place by AWI, which are, have been terrific, but you've sort of been stymied by the seasons. It's very hard to do uh, implement improvements in productivity when people were battling just to keep sheep on the property. Exactly, and uh, you're absolutely right. People are, are very keen to, to rebound if they can, and we're, I suppose from an AWI point of view, we're, we're tackling it from a, a number of points of view, through education, for example, through the, the National Merino Challenge and uh, through the, the state-based uh, networks that we have across every state through uh, through Winning with Wiener courses and Lifetime U Management and even the Merino Lifetime Productivity Project, which is uh, an enormous project across five sites, looks to, uh, to show just how dynamic, versatile and profitable the Merino is. Um, and that's um, that, that's the key to it, isn't it? The, there is that, um, that dynamic factor about the Merinos and, of course, We've seen um, prices for both wool and sheep making um, – <laughs> the people who have merinos are feeling really good and I guess they feel a little bit uncomfortable about some of the ones who, who are in those uh, areas where they can't continue to run merinos because of the season. Just to pick one program out, I mean, one that gets a lot of uh, mention is the um, lifetime U management. I mean, that's had a big impact. Do you have any background on that that you can add? 
Uh, certainly. I mean, having done the course myself, I know how valuable it is. I think it's now been seen as probably the most successful extension program in the history of the sheep industry in Australia, which I know is a massive, a massive claim, but it has had well over 3,000 uh, producers through it and it's had a, uh, an influence across probably close to half of the, the, uh, the flock across Australia. And through that, they've had increased uh, weaning percentages, lower ewe mortality, and higher product, uh, higher production, and and also uh, profitability. So it's had a, a real impact. Um, it's, it's been great, uh, just from a personal point of view, to have built the the app, um, which is I think I had something like seven thousand downloads from the app store now, which has been great. So being able to have all that technology on your mobile phone to help manage your your, your flock really uh, has helped. But uh, you know, if the rain doesn't fall, the grass isn't there. It's, it's very hard to uh, to really, as you say, take the full um, benefit of, of these programs. Of course, the, the it not only impacts on wool growers, but it impacts on AWI, um, Marius, because your um, your levies are based on uh, the volume of wool that's going through, the price of wool, etc. So, if the flock keeps declining, and especially the merino flock, I mean, that's going to impact on your abilities to to fund anything, let alone, um, you know, these important on-farm research programs. Yes, and that has uh, weighed heavily on, uh, I know, on, on the board of AWI and, and the senior management of AWI. Uh, things are having to be paired back uh, considerably. Uh, there has been uh, a dip into considerable reserves to, to soften that blow, but uh, projects have been paired back. Um, staff are being paired back. And uh, it's yes, it look it's a pity, but it's, it's the reality of things. Growers uh, did vote for a, a lower levy, but the drought in New South Wales and uh, parts of Queensland and pastoral areas have uh, have really um, reduced uh, projected levy income very 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 considerably. So it's uh, a very changed landscape. Yes, and. Uh we, you know, we can all hope that uh, that turns around. Of course, the big question will be then, when it turns around, how will people go about breeding more sheep? And, um, you know, there's, there's the challenge, as I said in the opening, that uh, you, it's going to be difficult to buy them um, and breeding up is, is slow, although, um, you know, we have had some suggestions. So um, just as a uh, sort of to finish off, I need to make a point, Marius. Um, firstly, you, I feel a bit humble speaking to you because you're the... Um, you're the presenter of the the uh, world famous AWI podcast, The Yarn, and uh, and I've been on it, but I've also listened to a lot of those programs, and you you present a lot of information there. But uh, that's not the whole story, is it, Maris? You're also the Sheepvention Monarch. What do you what can you tell us about that? Well, uh, it's, it's nice to be on your podcast as well. We don't want to get into too much of a group love situation, Rob, but podcasts are fun, aren't they? They're great ways to communicate. Uh, so Sheepvention, as you and I know, as uh, proud Western Victorians, is uh, a very important part of uh, farming culture down here. And for the last 40 years, I think it might be, Rob, they've uh, nominated, elected um, uh, a monarch of Sheepvention. And um, I was honoured to, to be um, this year's uh, Sheepvention monarch, uh, Sheep and Wool monarch, I think it is. And uh, that sort of entails uh, really championing um, sheep mention and the region and the role that uh, wool has down here. Um, and also wearing a, a slightly unusual crown, which is, of course, made of wool. So there's a few photographs going around with 
me wearing that, um, which has been a great honour and also nice to follow in my uh, footsteps from many years ago. So I think I'm one of 30 or monarchs now. But uh, look, it's a funny tradition. Um, it's a lovely thing to be recognised um, and to be in some pretty esteemed company. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's nice to be recognised. As many people work a lot harder and much, much more effectively than I have and uh, don't get recognised. So... Uh, Oh, I, th- yes, I think nice. it's. I think it's well. I think you're really deserving of it. And uh, of course, you're, uh, you're. You're now. You know, we can draw the bow a bit further and say you're now the presiding monarch over the merino industry. And uh, the challenges are there, but it's going to take passion. It's going to take uh, effort, and and the continued works that uh, your programs do will have an impact. So we're going to keep talking about this, and we and, and it's because, like you, Maris, we're um, we really think that the merino industry is important. There's no doubt that in some parts of Australia that the merino sheep is the most productive and best product to be using on on some of that country, don't you think? Definitely, but I think there's going to be potentially, well, we know that there's a lot of potential for uh, growth in, in that what used to be the sheep um, wheat zone, which has just become the wheat zone across Australia. Um, Merino's uh, reducing people's uh, production risk, financial risk. I mean, we've seen some institutions, some banking institutions saying they'll only lend to people if they have a livestock element to their cropping um, uh, enterprise. And we've seen some really interesting uh, uses of technology. Uh, obviously, the croppers use a lot of satellite mapping technology and there are some areas of farms um, in more marginal areas where they just don't make enough money out of cropping. So, People are starting to fence those off and running sheep, and they guarantee a return. So it's, um, it's, it's some different ways to go about this. We've been in drought uh, many times before in Australia. Uh, the the future of sheep industries looks so bright. Um, so we need to provide the education, uh, the support, the networks there for people to bounce back to enter that haven't entered before that want to enter. So um, yeah, it's. Looking bright, but Mother Nature's got to come to the party. We'd like to say a big thank you to uh, Charlie Stavegli, Andrew Ritchie and Marius uh, for taking the time out to chat to Mercado about what is happening in the wool market in terms of uh, what is the future for the industry and putting across some of their points. Uh, as is always the case, we give you this podcast for free of charge. We only ask for one thing. Uh, please provide us with a, a like or a comment on wh- wherever you listen to this podcast. Uh, And if you can share it on social media uh, to your friends and family, that would be fantastic. Thanks very much. Bye-bye.